Welcome, Pioneers, to episode 24 of the Wi-Fi Pioneers podcast. Today, Remy will not be joining us. He's back to his, his colonization of the moon or Mars or whatever top secret program he's working on. So I've got a guest that's going to talk to us today. Um, before I get into introducing her and her story, I just really quick want to thank you, the listener, for the patience you've had in my continuous technical problems I've had in the last 20 or so episodes. Um, you guys have been very patient. seems like every episode I've got a new, new audio recording issue that wasn't there in the previous uh, episode. And I'm, I'm on a new hosting platform now. I've got a new microphone. I've been going through new equipment every time. And I just want to thank you for your patience on that and the fact that you're still listening in spite of my you know, borderline tech, technical ineptitude in this. So really, thank you guys. Uh, with that, let me... I'm going to introduce um, an author, a romance author, who is uh, one of my online friends, I guess you'd say. Uh, she's going to go by the name of Samantha today. And it's because, as we've discussed with our other guests before in the past, we are very, um, we take anonymity seriously and the anonymous nature of our, our guests seriously. And she's requested that I not name her books by name, simply because some of the stuff we talk about in other episodes and future episodes of this podcast could be uh, will be offensive to her reader and could get her in trouble with them. And the era of cancel culture, I'm not going to ever put a, a guest's reputation or money on the line simply, you know, for, for this podcast. So uh, with that, Samantha is a, a romance author. She's self-published on the Amazon platform, and I'm going to let her introduce herself and tell the what part of her background she's willing to talk about. So Samantha, go ahead and uh, tell us about yourself. Hi, um, thank you so much, Colt and Remy, for having me on. Um, as you said, my name is Samantha, and I have been self-publishing on Amazon for about four years now. Um, so I've got about 25 books that I have gone through and published. Uh, I have eBooks available, paperback, and I am also on Kindle Unlimited. What made you decide to do romance to begin with? For me, I have been reading romance since I was pretty young. Um, I've always been drawn to the genre, and I know that a lot of women are. It is a billion-dollar industry. Um, and since I know the subgenres that go along through the whole romance platform so well, I just figured it would be a good way for me to kind of kick things off. And then if I ever wanted to branch out to do something else, like say sci-fi or mystery or thrillers, I could always do that. Um, but romance for me, I just, I love reading it. Um, turns out I love writing it. So I just figured I'd give it a shot. All over my corner of Twitter, we have a lot of people pushing the idea of being a writer, whether it's through different platforms and stuff. And a lot of people are pop popping up, uh, especially in my, in my followers and people I follow about being a self-published author, getting away from the publishing companies and just self-publishing in general on Amazon. Um, when people are doing that, how, how do you pick a genre? You know, we, we've got fiction and nonfiction and fiction, both of them subdivide into so many categories. What, uh, what is the best way to figure out your starting point in the self-publishing world? What, where do you pick where to start? One of the biggest things is it's really important that you understand whatever genre you're going to pick. Um, so you need to know, you need to have a goal, you know, whether you want to make money, if you want to just create art, 
whatever it is. And then from there, you're going to decide, you know, whether you want to go fiction or nonfiction. Um, those are two very big differences, obviously. Um, most people are going to go towards fiction. Um, and then the easiest way for you to choose what genre you want to go into is to know that genre. So you don't really want to go into writing mystery novels if you've not read a lot of mystery novels because reader expectation is going to be really huge no matter where you go. Um, So you need to understand the rules that come with each genre. Um, You know, romance has a lot of, a lot of rules. Um, One of the, a really big uh, controversial author is Nicholas Sparks because a lot of times he doesn't actually have a happy ending, a happily ever after for the couple. And most women, since women are your your main reader of romances, most women don't consider a book a romance unless it has a happily and happily ever after for that couple. Um, so you need to understand what exactly is expected out of each genre, or you will not be able to hit those points and your readers are going to be really upset with the book. Um, and it'll be a lot harder for you to market as well because they're going to be like, well, this isn't actually a romance, so you should be putting it over here. But then the other side, they might be, well, this really isn't, you know, say it's a sci-fi romance. Well, it's not really a sci-fi. You should put it in romance. So you need to make sure that you understand what it is that's expected of you and what's expected out of your story and your book. So that makes perfect sense, um, especially knowing what the reader expectation is. When you're reading uh, science fiction, there's an expectation that you're going to be dealing with uh, a, a basis in real science and that you know you should be able to look at uh, the technology that's in there, that, that it may be plausible in the future. There's an expectation of aliens that are more powerful, right? When you're dealing with a thriller or a mystery, you don't want it to be solved with clues that aren't available to you throughout the book. You want the ability to solve it, but not so easy that you actually do. You don't want to see the twists coming, but you want all the evidence there. So it makes sense that you, you have to get the reader expectations. Now the published industry kind of set the rules for a long time of what you're supposed to do, uh, whether it's, you know, for your case, uh, romance, um, but also science fiction, mystery, whatever, those rules don't exist in uh, Amazon or in the, not just Amazon, but in the self-publishing world. The self-publishing world, from what I've seen and what I'm experiencing in my own writing, is that there it's no rules to some, like, there's no gatekeepers, right? So you don't have editors telling you what you can and can't do. The, the only gatekeeper is yourself and your audience. So uh, what are some things that uh, took you by surprise when you started writing romance because you said you you had a background in romance but the difference or you were a reader of romance sorry but when you went from the self-publishing or the the traditionally published world of romance to the self-published world i gotta imagine there was a lot of differences between those two worlds and um well you and i've talked offline about some of those differences so what are what are some of the things that maybe surprised you that you were allowed to or not allowed to do when you started writing your romance It's really interesting, and I'm going to back up for just a second before I answer that. So the difference between traditional publishing and self-publishing, there's still a spot for traditional publishing, but it is definitely dwindling. Um, They made it extremely hard for people to, and still do to this day, to get into 
traditional publishing, you know, authors will send in, um, you know, their books hundreds of times and get rejected hundreds of times. I personally prefer self-publishing because of the freedom that I have. Like you said, there's no um, publishing house, no editors, nobody telling me what I can or can't do. Um, so I, I really like the freedom of self-publishing, but it is a very different world between the two. So traditional publishing, you know, um, starting out, you have a much more limited amount of subgenres that are allowed for, and then just speaking romance. Um, so, you know, there was PNR, which is paranormal romance, um, you know, and you had things like, of course, historical romance was huge. Uh, you had some contemporary like Nora Roberts does. Um, and then she also has a PNR slash fantasy based, uh, vein that she goes off on as well. Um, but you didn't have things like motorcycle romance, mafia romance, mo monster romance, alien romance. You didn't have a lot of those, um, which you do with self-publishing. Self-publishing, it's like, if you can think it up, you can write it. And that's really neat because a lot of new subgenres have been popping up that we never really got to see before. Things like Omegaverse romance, you know, things like that. Um, that traditional publishing still to this day really won't allow. Um, the other thing is, is they're very picky on word usage. Um, so when you get into what we call the spicy scenes, you had to write as more of a metaphor in traditional romance. You didn't get to just flat out say what was happening. Now, traditional publishing does have an erotica um, category where you would get some of that but in the just regular romance books you it's very watered down so when you go on to self-published books um you we've started the authors have created a um scale they call it the the hot chili pepper scale and so it's usually one to five and you know one is pretty mild a lot of what you're going to get from uh traditional ro published romances and then like five is like off the charts you know um 50 shades of gray would probably still be a two or a three um maybe a little bit more it just kind of depends it's obviously very subjective um there's people that will say well this is a three on the spice meter and then others are like nah it's a one you know so it's obviously very subjective but that gives you an idea going in so a lot of times the the reviewers will put that in their reviews, like how spicy it was, things like that. Um, but that's the the biggest differences is the amount of different subgenres that come with romance now, and then um, the spice meter. So there's a lot of follow-up questions I have about the different genres, but I'm going to put a pin in it because today for our listener, we're going to talk more about the technical end of how to write a book, what you're you know, how to write plot points and then actually marketing. That's the direction today we're going, guys. But there's a whole follow-up that's going to have to be done to this about the different genres, the level of uh, spice, as you call it, or perversion, as others might call it, how graphic these, these sex scenes are and what's involved. Because there's, my wife reads romance and she shares with me a lot of these things. And there's there's some stuff that if you're not familiar with independently published romance, people aren't 
it's going to really surprise them. Reverse harems, kidnapping plots, just real, real stuff that makes Beauty and the Beast look tame, stuff that makes uh, Fifty Shades of Grey look tame. So we're going to talk about that in maybe the next episode or the next follow-up with, with Samantha. But for today, we're going to go to the technical end of the state of things. So just, just so you guys know, if you do, if you do have questions, we are going to address them. Just, there's not going to be time today. Uh, so with that little caveat there, um, how are you, um, creating your plots and your characters for your books? My understanding is that, um, the readers, despite their extremely feminist nature, do not like Mary Sue's or um, easy Scooby-Doo plot points. So what is your what is your approach to making a plot and characters that are going to satisfy your reader? It really depends on the subgenre that you're in, how much plot is really expected. There are there's a, a most romance readers are going to be very happy with having the relationship and the angst between the main characters be the majority of the plot. Um, but it, it depends. Like if you go into paranormal romance or fantasy romance, if that's all you have, you're not going to have a very, a book that sells very well. It is very expected that there's more going on, that there's going to be some, you know, the, the actual definition for the, fantasy romance is that there's an actual quest or um a journey that the the main character has to go on as well as finding her true love or multiple if you're if you're reading a reverse harem <laughs> which for those who don't know a reverse harem is where you got one female character and three or more love interests and the males share with the female or share the female with each other okay. Um, but so for me, I like to put a lot of plot in because of the subgenre that I write. Um, so I will have foreshadowing. I will have, because I write in series, I don't write standalones for the most part. Um, so in book one, I might mention something that will come around in book seven, you know, so I'll foreshadow, um, as to how I, how I do the plots. It's, it's hard because, um, getting into the technical side of things. I'm a pantser, so I do not work off an outline. I just sit down and I just write as it comes to me and my characters evolve as they come to me. Um, so I might have a basic idea of what I'm going to do with my plot, but my books are very rarely only relationship-based. There is a lot of that in there as well, but then I also put in things like, you know, uh, battles, action scenes, things like that. Interesting. Um, so for those who, who aren't, again, aren't familiar with romance, um, just kind of what she means by, by the angsty stuff is you'll literally have an 80,000 page book that 90, 70,000 words of it, or excuse me, 80,000 word book, 80,000 page book is going to take you a lifetime to read a book. That's 80,000 words, 70,000 words are going to be I want to bang him, but he's dangerous. I want to bang him, but he's dangerous. And him going, I want to bang her, but I don't want to corrupt her. Or I want to bang her, but I don't want her in my lifestyle. And it's just that. That's just, I want to, but I, and it's all angst. And it's it's torture on, uh, well, it's torture for any man to try to read that. And it's also torture for apparently a lot of women too, or at least a 
significant portion of women who are romance readers but want something else going on. That's the way why my wife describes it. They want something else to happen. So that's um, that's good. That I mean, obviously, you found a niche able to do that uh, to satisfy your readers into having an actual plot to go with it. Um, I threw a lot of questions at you at once. So um, how do you avoid the Mary Sue effect? How do you write female characters who are likable, relatable, but um, who still, because it's romance, have to be saved by the, the man? You know, you, she's smart enough that she's not she's not just a useless character, but you still have to she still has to be saved. Right. Because it's romance. She has to be saved by the hero. Or what's the point? So <laughs> that's a good question. And. A lot of authors still to this day fall into this trap. Um, the reason romance readers are so tired of Mary Sue's is that this happened so much at the very beginning when even in traditional publishing, um, they still do this to this day, but they basically create this female character who, you know, paranormal is is really the easiest way to give you a example of a Mary Sue. So the female main character ends up finding out that she is the savior of this species, say these werewolves find her uh, or shifters who turn into wolves. Right. Um, which in romance is often kind of the same thing. They're not really individual things. Werewolf shifters are kind of a, considered the same thing. Um, although there are, you can break it apart if you choose to, but for the most part they don't. So these shifters find her and bring her back to, you know, their pack and she ends up finding out that she's the you know the the one creature born that is going to save them from whatever peril is you know whatever threats coming after them um and she's often starts out as human and then they will change her um you know whether she's got one male or two or three or however many she has they'll change her into a shifter herself and then all of a sudden she just knows how to be a wolf and knows how to use her powers. And, you know, it's just all of a sudden this fighting badass machine that can't be stopped until she usually ends up making some kind of stupid mistake that you as the reader go, really? Why did you do that? That was stupid. That's what we call too stupid to live. Um, and then the males have to save her. Um, and it goes from her being this all-powerful being with no effort, which is boring, to now she's made just this really irrational, dumb mistake, and they have to save her, and all of a sudden she seems to be useless. So then, you know, it's towards the end, and they've they've rescued her, and everything's all happy again, and she's just this powerful being again. It's just really boring, and it's been done so many times. It's most readers really hate Mary Sue's and they hate too stupid to live characters. So those are two traps you have to be really careful not to fall into. So what I like to do is even if my character is very confident and self-assured and she can even be, um, you know, decently powerful to begin with, you just have to explain it. Right. So I'll have a character who was say, um, you know, trained MMA for most of her life, but she's still not stronger than, you know, the male characters. She's still, because in reality, you're most of the time you're not going to be right. So if she's fighting men, she's going to take some hits. 
it makes it more relatable and real. And she's going to have to struggle and she has to use things that will help her get the upper, upper hand, like gun or a knife, or, you know, um, if she's going to go after somebody, she can use, you know, a uh, sleep aid or something like that, you know, she slips it in their drink and then she's got them, you know, on the ropes, but, and then, so she can start out decently strong physically, but then she has to still have a growth arc and through that growth arc is where, and it doesn't have to be a physical thing. You know, it can be something like, um, she has to actually, if she gets turned into a shifter, say she actually, you spend some time actually showing her needing to learn how to fight as a wolf or all of a sudden she has these powers and she has to learn how to use them. If I could just jump in and interrupt your, your train of thought for a second, you've, you've, send up a bunch of flares in my head. I don't want to forget them all. So um, the first one is for people who are still a little lost on the romance and the shifter stuff, I can give you the perfect example of the Mary Sue versus a, a growth arc, right? So um, any call to adventure action series in the male uh, with a male character, he has to, he has to learn, he has to be trained to fight. And then he, then he grows from there. Right? So think, think Luke Skywalker and star Wars, he, um, you know, he, he's just a kid. He doesn't know what the force is. He's got no idea what's going on. He has to train with Yoda. He has to learn to be better and learn how to, how to be a Jedi. And it's, it takes three episodes, three movies, and he still is weaker than, than his opponents, right? He has to still grow into it. Whereas the new Star Wars series with Rey, she's the perfect Mary Sue. You tell her Jedis are real and she's instantly an expert at the force absolutely no growth arc whatsoever so and you almost never see this in uh in tv shows and action movies where women actually have to grow and get better at what they are the the mary sue effect is in full force in hollywood um so really when you said that you you explained that like she'll be a trained mma fighter but she still can't take on a man who's who's um trained better than her or bigger than her because that's real life it's like yeah exactly a, a woman who's who's trained to fight can can hold her own against an untrained man but once he's 100 pounds heavier than her or he's well trained like again she's lost all her advantage so that's that's really interesting that not only are you making a growth arc but you're you're putting them in a position of disadvantage despite how strong they are like um you made me think of the uh, aquaman movie which whether people like it or not um uh what's his name jason momoa he, he enters the scene, he finds the submarine that's doing whatever theft or poaching or something, whatever they're doing illegally, and he just absolutely kicks everybody's ass. And he, they show right up front how strong he is. He just beats the shit out of everybody. Then in the, you know, a couple scenes later, he's dealing with the other people from Atlantis and gets his ass completely kicked. So you go from, you know, you have this introduction of how strong he is to this, you know, they put him right in his place and show you that he's not the strongest. So... For you to do that with a a female, uh, it's got to be a unique unique perspective for you. That's got to be a nice um, a nice change of pace for your reader to have something uh, uh, more realistic, you know, and relatable, versus just having a woman who's who's Ray, who's just instantly perfect. So um, that's that's interesting that you went that route. I, I hope that continues to work for you because it seems like we, we definitely need that in Hollywood. Maybe. Maybe someday you'll get lucky enough to put put your books up into that space and give us something interesting to watch. 
that would be amazing. Um, and yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, I, I do get a lot of compliments on my female characters. So I, I really do hope that my readers enjoy that. Um, you know, the other thing that I like to do, a lot of times authors kind of write the same book with the same characters every single time. So I like to switch it up. So, you know, your character doesn't have to always be physically strong to be a strong woman. Um, you know, so I might have a softer, more feminine female who, you know, she's soft and, and easy the whole book. And then something happens where she has to step up and show how strong she is and how um, caring she is towards others and how much she wants to be a protector for them, for those who are, are more vulnerable than she is. Right. So like I might put it where, um, you know, she's in a situation where there's other women and children there or something, and she's the one who steps forward and is like, you know, confronts the bad guy until the male main character comes in and saves the day. And, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not me trying to say that women can't rescue themselves and they can't protect themselves because that's something you can do too, where they can get themselves, like if they've been kidnapped, they can actually get themselves out of the kidnapping. And then other things happen where the male main character can come in and be the hero for the day. Um, It's just that in romance, you often have, you kind of need that part where the, her man comes in and, in one way or another rescues her. It does again, it doesn't have to be physically. He can be the the shoulder that she needs, the rock that she needs during hard times, something like that. It doesn't have to be he's rescuing her from a kidnapping kind of thing or from bad guys. But in some way he's there for her and puts everything to the side to protect her. You know, when you get into dark romance, um, you know, and and this is another thing with self-publishing is you've got so many things. You've got small town, small town romance, which is usually very soft and fluffy. Think Hallmark kind of stories, you know, ex-CEO comes home to her hometown and, and meets the, you know, the grumpy hero who eventually they win each other over and they fall in love. You've got middle ground stuff where you have anti-heroes And these are guys like a lot of times that's your motorcycle type guys where they don't follow the law, but they are good men to their families. Um, And then you can even have villains, full grown. This is a bad guy, but he loves his woman. And those are often what you have touch her and die type vibes. You can have those vibes through all of those books, especially the antiheroes and the villains and women really love that. It's like the man's willing to do anything to protect her and love her and keep her safe. So if I could kind of summarize all that, it seems like what you talked about at the very beginning, knowing your genre, knowing your subgenre and the reader expectations, right? Um, And in the case of romance, pretty much whatever it is, the guy needs to save the girl, whether it's saving her from a physical threat or saving her from herself, right? The Hallmark movie where the, this, you go to the, she goes to the small town strawberry festival and the local rancher has to save her from her corporate uh, wage slavery or in your motorcycle 
thing, you know, uh, a motorcycle gang kidnaps a girl, and no matter how strong she is, it's still expected that the the good guy biker is going to save her. So that seems like there's some things about romance that are inescapable. The boy must save the girl, no matter what. But how you get there, and whether you make the girl likable and whatnot, is what's key. Um, so with that kind of summary in place, I'd like to shift kind of away from the details of romance books more to the technical end of writing, just uh, because I don't know how much of our readers or our listeners are interested in the details of romance books and story writing. So uh, we're going to bring it over to the technical end so that if they're in other genres, they can kind of relate to that more. Uh, not that I'm trying to shit on your, your genre or anything, but I want to make it as relatable as possible. Um, so tell me a little bit about your, you, you mentioned that you're a, a panzer, which is that you don't write a plot. Um, kind of tell me about some different writing patterns or habits that uh, people can embrace, people who have ideas in their head but don't know where to get started with writing. So it's actually panzer, like pants that you wear. Um, and then you have plotters, then they use outlines and you can kind of break them down from from there about different ways to write. Um, most people are honestly going to be plotters. Um, they're going to do best if they actually outline a story and follow it from there. Um, but there are quite a few pantsers as well that for whatever reason, they have a hard time following an outline. You know, a lot of times I hear from a lot of them that it kills their creativity. And so like, they just cannot get the words out. If they already know what's going to happen in the story, they get bored with it. Um, for others, they just, you know, myself, I just have a hard time outlining and then sticking to that outline. Like as I go, my characters just kind of grow and do what they want. It sounds kind of weird, but it just builds in my mind a different way than what I already wrote down. So I have a hard time doing that. So most of the time, the best thing for somebody who's just getting started to do is to try outlining first. You know, um, and there's all sorts of books you can buy um, and even books that are tailored specifically to romance, you know, called like Romancing the Beats and things like that. And so it'll give you all the beats that you're supposed to hit while writing a romance novel, the acts that you're supposed to do and what um, what things are supposed to happen during which acts and, and whatnot. I don't do any of that. I just kind of wing it. Uh, it just works better for me. I just, I'm not a very good organized writer, never have been. So I just do what feels right. But for most people, being organized with it is going to get you the story out the easiest. So, um, you know, the other thing is you, it, it's very hard when you first start writing to actually write you sit down and you're just kind of staring at this, the paper and it can be kind of, um, or the screen, it can be kind of intimidating, right? And it's just hard to get started. And each day it can be hard to get started. So, you know, I'll do things like give myself little rewards and I start building. So when I first started, you know, I had a hard time writing. So I would be like, all right, I'm going to sit down for five minutes and I'm going to write during that five minutes, even if I don't like whatever it is I put on the paper. And then I'm going to give myself a reward. So I'll sit there and watch TikTok for two minutes, put an alarm on, scroll for two minutes, get back to writing. And then I set a um, 
total word count that I want to do for the day. You know, most people start off with 100 words, 500 words. If you do really well and stick with it and the, the story is really flowing, there's people that end up writing 10,000 words in a day. That's that's a lot. That is a fast writer. Most people do anywhere between one to 4,000 words a day. Yeah, it kind of seems like some, some of the most generic advice is also the best advice because, um, and, I, and I'm guilty of this too, a lot of the, the advice I tw- put out on Twitter is just, um, you know, like being consistent in your time of day. For me, it's first thing in the morning. I get up before the sun rises. I write basically until the sun comes up and then I go do my farm, my farm stuff. But um, people who are night owls like to do it at night, people that are morning people, like whenever your creativity is, you just set aside, you know, whatever, 30 minutes, an hour, something when you're most creative, use that time and then move on to the next thing when you're done with that. Um, So it kind of seems like just having a good habit, a good pattern, and that's consistent is key. And in the beginning stages of it, you got to refine it for yourself, but to whatever works for you. But once you figure out what works, do it every day, every day, and, and you get there. Um, so, and I like your idea about rewards too, whether it's just, you know, giving yourself some TikTok or letting yourself play on the internet, look at, I wind up doing Twitter, you know, I'll, I'll get my ideas out for, for 15, 20 minutes, put out a couple tweets and then go right back into it. So um, definitely what, what works for you. Right. And, you know, most people work, right? So it's really important to be, you have to be dedicated to it. Otherwise, it's it's really hard, you know, if you, if you think about it, getting 50,000 words out, which is a pretty small novel, you know, most novels are going to be typically around 70,000 words. Um, they can be a little shorter. And of course, if you're doing a novella, it's going to be, you know, below 40,000 words, things like that. But you have to be real dedicated to getting that amount of words down on a paper and having um, everything flow properly, which other people will help you with. But so, you know, I would come home from work and you're tired, you're mentally exhausted, you might be physically exhausted and you're thinking, I don't want to sit down and do this. Still have to make dinner, you know, got to get the kids down for the, for their bedtime, do their bath, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I just want to read a book, relax, maybe go to sleep, but you gotta, you gotta carve out that time that will allow you to actually work on the book. Otherwise it just never gets done. That can be a really hard one for a lot of people. Um, balancing work life plus doing this on the side as a hobby. And then later as you start getting bigger, it's less of a hobby. And now you have two jobs basically. Let's uh, jump to the next part of this then, which is for a lot of people who want to start writing the most important part, actually making money as an independent author. Um, you know, let's, uh, I know the answer to this question I'm about to ask you, but it's the single most important one for people to get through their head. I think, uh, when they're first getting started, if you write one book, are you going to make any money and how fast are you going to make money off of one book? It is highly unlikely that you're going to make money with just one book Um, unless you happen to be part of that. And I don't even think it's 1%. I think it's like 1.01% of people who they write a book and it just goes viral and everybody goes nuts for it. That has happened. But 
that's very rare. Um, for the most part, you need to keep, you need to put out as many books as you can, at least as a romance writer. But I think this is probably pretty, I would assume, typical of the other genres as well. You need to put out at least a few books a year. Um, for romance readers, they are voracious. They will read anywhere from, you've got your slower readers who will read three or four books in a month, and you have your faster readers who will read 50 books in a month. Um, all you have to do is go on TikTok and watch these book talkers and they, um, romance book talkers, and they'll talk about, you know, these are the, this is the 60 books I read this month, and they do that all year round. Um, so they can go through a lot of books. So the expectation for romance writers is that you put out a lot of book. And if you put out that kind of bulk, where a lot of books where you put out that kind of bulk, you're going to pick up fans faster because they know that you're reliable and that you're going to put out a lot of books and they like your writing. So they're going to keep going with what you've written. It's not just romance though. Uh, Cause right off the bat, I could think of several examples like JK Rowling, who's probably the most successful author that's still alive. Um, you know, her, she's done over a billion dollars in sales of the Harry Potter series, and that's seven books, right? If she had just wrote the first one and walked off, nothing would have happened. Um, you know, you take uh, the Twilight series was was popular, and so was the Hunger Games, and uh, you mentioned earlier uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. Those are all trilogies. Uh, they didn't do uh, single single books and win. And those, I mean, those are all trad published ones, but that's what people are going to understand and, and be able to recognize out of it. So it makes sense that you have to write a lot of books, even in nonfiction. Um, most of your best selling authors of nonfiction have written several books. They write follow-ups and see not, not necessarily sequels, but whatever topic they write about ages out. So they have to write it, you know, if it's a political or economics book, they tend to only have a relevancy of six months to a year, and then you have to write the next book. Um, so whatever genre you're getting into, you definitely have to keep writing um that's something i try to hammer home to people too because um in the nonfiction side of it a lot of people want to write a book to show their expertise in a subject and they're using the book to to sell a program not the book itself uh which is a whole technique in itself that i don't really want to get too much into but if you're looking to actually make money off your book you need to add an s to that it needs to be books you need to write a bunch of them and and stay relevant um the other thing you mentioned that I think is really important, you said that romance writers need to be uh, reliable because they, the reader wants to know they're going to finish what they're doing. Think about Game of Thrones um, and the, what George R. R. Martin did when he, you know, when that thing went to uh, HBO and they started making the series, he basically just looked at his fans and said, F you, I'm done. I got my money. I'm out and never bothered to finish the series. And, you know, uh, my money is on he's not going to because why would he? He's already made his money. Uh, he clearly doesn't respect his fans, so he walked off. Um, you know, he's famous. He can get away with that. But a new independent author, you you can't get away with that. You've got to show respect to your audience and actually finish what you start. So that's a um, very big takeaway, very important thing for authors is finish what you start. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I speak about romance because that's what I know. Um, I don't read as much of the other stuff, and I certainly don't follow their trends or their habits. But... I, you absolutely can take pretty much all of what I'm saying and apply it to, to any genre. You know, the only one I can really think of who gets away with writing standalones really well is um, Stephen King. Other than that, most people tend to write in series because that's 
what makes you more money. The read through between one book, one, two, three, four, that's where the money starts piling up. You know, you might put out a book and have a, you know, have a really good month and the book does really well, but it's only making you 400 bucks, you know, for the month, but you have seven books that are making you 400 bucks for the month. It starts adding up the more books you have. So that's why a lot of times you'll hear authors talking about how important your backlist is and building that backlist and having, you know, cause once somebody finds you and reads a book that, you know, one of your books and they really like it, a lot of times they go back and read every single thing you've written or at least everything you've written um, that fits in that subgenre. If you're looking at romance, you know, cause if you hop subgenres, not every romance reader will read every subgenre, but they will read all of your stuff that they're interested in basically. Yeah, I've done a couple of tweet threads on this about your backlist and your read-through rate. So if you're, like, like you said, if you have one book that's selling $400 a month, but you have six books total, if you had a you know roughly 50% read-through rate, which uh, from what I've noticed is pretty normal if, if, you, if you're doing good, um, that means your second book is going to do $200 in sales. And your third book is going to be like 190 And then your fourth book is going to do... You know, because you, you read through from books two to three to four to five is usually in the, the 90 plus percentile. So having six books gets you over $1,000 a month versus the one book doing $400. And because you've done your, your backlist and and it's a series, people are going to continue going through, um, which is a great technique. Um, cool. And we could definitely go down a rabbit hole on that. But I want to jump over to um, we started talking to money and got sidetracked. Amazon, uh, Amazon Kindle Unlimited, Amazon ebook publishing versus going wide, you know, using any or all of the other platforms. Um, Amazon, if you're going to be in the Kindle Unlimited program, you have to be exclusive to them. So you can't use the wide platform, but you have these other platforms popping up. Kobo is the one that comes to mind. I can't name the others, but um, I know there's others you can do and some authors want to go wide. What's the advantage or disadvantage? You know, why would you pick Amazon or why wouldn't you pick Amazon? So this is, there's two hills and, and people like to try to die on both hills. So the people that go wide, absolutely. They're like, that is the only way to go. You should never go into KU. You know, the people that are in KU are like, no, heck no, I'm going to stay in here. Um, so one of the big things is whether your genre actually does well in KU. So genres that do obviously romance. So for those who aren't aware, uh, Kindle Unlimited is um, KU is what she was referring to as Kindle Unlimited. It's uh, you pay $10 a month, you you get unlimited access to any book that's in the Kindle Unlimited program. And for the author, you get paid per page read basically. So that's what she means when you're talking KU, uh, Kindle Unlimited. So sorry to interrupt you. So go, go ahead and, and finish your thought. No worries. Sorry. Yeah. Um, Kindle Limited, it's a subscription-based uh, reading platform um, and romance readers in particular love it because you pay 10 bucks and you can read as many books as you can read. And when you're reading 50 books a month, you know, that $2.99, $3.99, $4.99 price tag for eBooks gets really expensive really fast. So they love KU. Now, not all of them. There's still a lot of them that prefer eBooks or even paperbacks. You know, there's a lot of them that will read it in KU and then they'll buy the paperback so they can put it on their shelves. You know, they like to have these big, beautiful bookshelves. Um, anyways, so 
for for going wide, you've got things like Kobo Plus, Apple Books, stuff like that. Um, the biggest plus of that is that you're not exclusive to anybody. So you can put your books up everywhere. You can put them up on ebook on Amazon because when you're with K, when you're with Kindle Unlimited, you only have to be exclusive with your ebooks, your paperbacks, you can still sell anywhere, hardbacks, you can sell anywhere. Um, we won't get into audiobooks, but you know, cause that's, that's actually a different portion of Amazon and they often make you be exclu- exclusive with them as well, but you can put up paperbacks anywhere. So when you're wide, you're not stuck with Amazon's, um, rule of being exclusive. So some of the things that can happen when you're exclusive with Amazon is if they catch you, you know, people steal your books and pirate them and put them on pirate sites. If their bots find that, they can actually just pull your book out of KU without without any kind of recourse, you know, and you end up waking up finding out that your book has been shut down basically. And it's really upsetting for a lot of authors. So a lot of them go wide just to avoid that all together. Now I'm in KU. I'm a romance writer. More readers are willing to give you a chance if they can get your book for what they see as kind of free. So yeah, they've paid $10.99, but they see it as getting it for free, basically kind of like borrowing it from a library. Um, so they're willing to give you a chance because they don't have to pay four bucks for your book that they may not like. They just borrow it and then they put it back if they don't like it. Um, So you can build up a pretty big fan base pretty quickly. Um, Again, it's important to know whether your genre is gonna do well in KU. There are some that don't. Um, I know romance is the biggest one, but, and I, I can't even speak on the other ones really as to which other ones do well, but I know for a fact like horror doesn't do well in KU. Um, I want to say mystery doesn't, but I could be wrong on that. So if you're in one of those um, genres that doesn't do as well, it just behooves you to go wide at that point. You can even sell your books on your own website. But um, if it works, you know, if people like to read your genre on KU, it's I think it is a very good thing to do. For people that are in nonfiction, this might be a case where they put up their ebook on Amazon and then go to the other platforms because nonfiction is stuck in the the chicken and egg uh, uh, circle right now. There are no really good nonfiction books on Kindle Unlimited, so nonfiction readers aren't subscribing to Kindle Unlimited because there's no nonfiction readers on Kindle Unlimited. Nonfiction writers aren't putting their books on Kindle Unlimited, so until one of those two cycles breaks, um, going wide might be a better option. Uh, but I would put the caveat on if you go wide and it doesn't do well, consider putting it on Kindle Unlimited simply because the, the people who are using Kindle Unlimited are not the people who could buy the ebook. So it's not actually going to affect your ebook sales per se to be on Kindle Unlimited because, you know, People who buy ebooks don't have Kindle Unlimited subscriptions for the most part. So that's something to think about. Um, so with that, oh, um, unless you have anything to add. So that that's a really good point that I just wanted to kind of add on to. Your 
KU readers very rarely ever buy the ebooks. And so a lot of people will, they'll build up this huge following in KU. And then they're like, for one reason or another, they're like, I want to go wide. And they'll switch over. And then they'll be shocked because it's like starting all over again, because the people who are wide buy books, but they don't know who you are. They may not be buying your books because, you know, 85% of your, um, your sales essentially come from page reads from Kindle Unlimited versus eBooks being bought. So that is one thing to just be aware if you switch back and forth between the two, they're very different audiences, even within the same genre. Um, so just something to be aware if you do end up switching back and forth. Okay. Um, can you explain the Amazon rankings for us? You know, when you look at a book on Amazon, it'll say anywhere for, you know, number 50, in the Amazon store or number 50,000, number 100,000, right? Um, what's going on with that? What does that mean? And what's the relevance for the author or the reader? If you're number 50, you're going to be doing a happy dance as an author, that's for sure. <laughs> so the rankings um, in the overall Kindle store, but even the the different, you'll see like if you if you look at a book on, um, on the Kindle platform or even on Amazon, you look up the book, you'll see... Uh, the top ranking is the overall store and then you'll have generally three rankings below it and those are for different categories so you'll have something like contemporary romance historical romance anything that the book really is relevant in and then you'll see the ranking for that so some um some individual categories are easier to get ranked higher in because there's not as many people writing those types of books but so if you're trying to get ranked in say contemporary romance is going to be really hard because it's such a wide category and there's so many authors putting out so many books in that category. It's a lot harder to hit number one in that than something like, you know, uh, can't think of anything, just uh, angels, and, angels and demons romance. I don't think that's actually even a ranking uh, category, but just putting it out there. So, but the overall store ranking, um, really goes off of page reads and how many books you've written or sorry not how many books you've written how many books you've sold um so if you haven't sold any books or had any page reads for a week you're going to be up in the millions if you've sold a book you know today then you know it refreshes every four hours four hours later then you're going to be probably down in the hundred thousand um then you sell five books and you might be down around 50,000 and then you sell you in. So the more you sell, the lower you get, but then the lower you get, the more you have to sell in order to keep going that low. So to get under 1000 in, um, rankings, you have to sell a ton of books. And, and if you want to get anywhere near like one, two or three, you're going to be, you're going to be one of the, you're going to, be one of the top sellers um, that month. It's quite an amazing uh, demonstration of the Pareto distribution principle, right? Because to be number 100,000 in the Kindle store, you only need to sell one or two books. To be, you know, to jump 50,000 places in ranking, you just have to sell, you know, instead of two books, selling five or six. But to get under 100, you need to sell thousands in a four hour period. It's insane the way that scales. It's just like such a such a narrow pyramid to, to look at. So that's really 
crazy to think about, but it also um, lets you know when you're looking at a book as a purchaser, uh, kind of what you're looking at. When you, when you see a book that's ranked number 100,000, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good or bad book, but it tells you how frequently it's selling. So um, for the nonfiction side of it, it tells you kind of the credibility of the book you're about to buy or is an indicator, right? It's not a perfect, perfect, uh, uh, it's not perfect, but it will tell you an indicator of how much they're selling. And if they're not selling a lot, eh, they may not have the credibility behind it. So that's something to think about. Yeah. And you know, the, obviously I'm not giving exact numbers. It's not like you sell one book, you're only going to get to, or, you know, you're going to get to a hundred thousand in the rankings. It's, it's approximate, right? But it's a fairly low number, um, compared to what you have to sell to get to the super high, you know, super to number one, two, three, or anything like that. But the other thing is, is, you know, it refreshes every four hours, but it builds on itself. So if you've spent a week selling five books a day, that's going to get you higher than if you sell five books in one day and then you sell nothing for a week and then you sell five books again, you're not going to keep building up in the rankings. So um, it's, it's not necessarily just what you do in like that four hour window or that one day it does build on itself. Okay. That's good to know. Um, once you do start getting your books out there and you're getting sales and in the rankings, how do you like, how do you deal with, with criticism and uh, specifically negative reviews? So there, there's a couple of ways that you can do this for me. This is going to sound bad, but I just, I don't care. I don't let it bother me. You know, not every reader is going to love my books. That's something that authors need to realize. Like, yes, we want everybody to absolutely adore our books all the time, but it's just not going to happen. You can't please everybody. You know, there's going to be people who leave a five-star review raving about the same thing that somebody else who leaves a one-star review is complaining about. Right. Um, but there's a couple different ways to handle this. For me, I read every review and if I can pull something out of that review that can help me in the next book, I do. Otherwise I just, well, they're not my reader. No problem. Like, thanks for buying my book. You know, now you never actually respond to reviews. Um, Goodreads is one of those places where you can actually respond in like the actual Amazon store. You don't, you just never, it's not worth it. It makes you look argumentative. It's just not worth it. They're allowed to have their opinion, whatever that is on your book. It is not your place to go on there and argue with them, whether about what they did or didn't like. So in other words, not the Twitter approach. Don't troll your, your critics. Just, just let it go. Exactly. <laughs> it is not um, seen as professional. And, you know, there's a lot of people that even say that you shouldn't respond to good reviews, um, that the reviewer is leaving the review for other readers, not for the author. So you can like on Goodreads, you can like the review if it's a four or five star. Um, but, you know, or there's some people that even like their one, two, three stars, no, no big deal, you know, but don't respond. Don't get in fights. Authors have done that. And it just looks really bad on you. Um, that means a lot of readers who like you will look at that and go, I don't know if I want to support that author because they're, you know, going after people for what they think of their books. It's just, it's not a good look. So for most authors that I know a ton of authors they just do not look at their reviews whatsoever. They don't look at them on Amazon. They don't look at them 
at them, especially on Goodreads. Goodreads has a reputation for being a bit of a dumpster fire and people are just really mean on there. <laughs> like people will leave really awful reviews on Goodreads and then never bother to go do it on Amazon, you know, and, and something a lot of people don't know is that with Amazon, you have to have bought $50 worth of items in their store in order to even leave a review. Um, you can't just go on there and leave a review if you don't, you know, have an account or, and you haven't spent 50 bucks. Um, I don't know if that's the reason that things get weaned out. It's just for some reason, Goodreads has a really bad reputation for people being quite brutal over there. So most authors really just will not look at their reviews whatsoever. If you do look at your reviews, you have to take it for what it is. Like I said, like you're not going to make everybody happy if it upsets you to read those reviews and it affects you to where you are having a hard time writing. Don't read them. Don't look at them. It sounds like Goodreads is just the uh, Yelp version of uh, book reviews, just meant to be a dumpster fire for horrible people. Um, a couple weeks ago, I did a uh, we did an episode where I interviewed um, Linda from Substack. Uh, I think it's Linda Le- LeBron. I can't, I can't remember her, the exact pronunciation at the moment. Sorry, Linda. Um, but we we talked about um, authors going using uh, Substack as a different ways of, um, you know, just a, a separate medium, right? Like the, the possibility of a, she, she actually wanted to get somebody from the romance space into, uh, into Substack, whether they're doing short stories or newsletters, bonus chapters, preview chapters. Uh, what are some options that uh, are available? I know Patreon's another one. What are some things authors are doing and what, uh, and how are they leveraging it for extra income in addition to the books? Patreon is going to be pretty big, especially at least in the romance world. Um, basically what they do, uh, but it sounds like Substack. I've kind of looked into that as well. It sounds like you could do the same thing there too. But with these models, basically what you're going to do is you make a tiered system where someone can pay, you know, $5 a month for um, the lowest tier, $10 for the middle and 15 for the biggest And you'll do things like at the low tier, you'll put up each chapter that you're working on of every book that you're currently writing, you know, and then if you're in KU before you actually publish, you would have to take all those down. Some people will send them a free copy of the book then in case they didn't get a chance to catch up with the chapters before you had to unpublish, you know, and then the middle tier will be that plus artwork and bonus chapters and you know, additional things fleshed out with the different characters, different situations, just basically bonus uh, content. And then, you know, the top tier can be something like all of that plus audiobooks. And I will send you a uh, free paperback signed by me of every single book I put out kind of thing. Um, And a lot of times with Patreon, especially in order to get people over there, they, t- you know, authors will go to places like uh, Wattpad, uh, inked it, um, and put, you know, two or three chapters up or even like a quarter of the book up. And then if you want to keep reading, you have to go over to my Patreon kind of thing and get people to sign up that way. Now, is this something a new author should get involved in or is this should, should this be something you're doing after you're established? with a good fan base, good, re- and actually making some real sales as a way to 
boost your income versus a way to compensate for not having sales. This is sort of my opinion for the Patreon portion of it. I think those are for kind of your super fans. Those are for people who absolutely love everything you write. They want more of it and they want it before it even comes out on Amazon. They want all the additional things that you're going to give. So that's really for your super fans. So you want to have a decent fan base before setting it up. Now, if you don't have one and you set it up, no big deal. You're just not going to have a lot of subscribers, right? But if you get a few, no big, that's even better. Now, there before Amazon made self-publishing a thing, there were a lot of romance writers, especially, who were on Wattpad putting out their stories for free and building these fan bases that are just absolutely huge. And then Amazon Publishing came along they jumped over there and their fans actually followed them. And so they went into self-publishing with, you know, a fan base of 10,000 women, you know, that were just salivating over all, every book that they put out because they put out so much free content for them for so long. So those free sites are not utilized as often as they used to be. Um, usually authors, again, especially romance authors will use it for when, like if they don't feel as though they're ready to start publishing as they're still working on their craft. They don't know that their stories are good enough. They'll start over there, get kind of feedback from their readers, and then they'll jump over into self-publishing. So it never hurts to go into things like selling your paperbacks on your own website, um, you know, signed paperbacks or even just selling your paperbacks or going into a subscription-based model like Patreon or Substack, like, because if, the fans aren't there yet. They will be eventually. Just like all things, broaden your horizons. Um, so let's talk a little advertising. What are what uh, is available to new authors in the forms of social media posts and social media advertising? Obviously, you know, um, you've got your social medias that have been around a lot longer, like Facebook and Instagram. Those still have their place in you know your plan for advertising um the biggest thing with facebook uh is facebook ads are going to be super helpful so running ads to your book um typically you run an ad to the first book in the series um and then from there they keep the read through the other thing that facebook is really good for besides giving your fans a place to go you know, find you and see your posts on your page or even a reader group that you've created is other reader groups that are in your subgenres. So you can go find, you know, military romance or reverse harem romance readers or dark romance readers, any of those. And you can go in there and each group has their own set of rules, whether you can promote your books, when you can promote them, if you promote them under certain threads, if you can promote them in the, the replies, things like that. Those will be helpful. Um, they can take up a lot of time and a lot of people can get discouraged by doing that if they aren't getting any traction. So it's, it's just one piece of the puzzle, right? Um, same thing with Instagram. You're going to be finding a lot of readers over on Instagram using your hashtags. 
Um, so you're going to be hashtagging anything that's relevant to your book. And then readers are going to be scrolling through their feeds and then they're going to see your stuff. Um, also, something that's gotten a little bit bigger now is Instagram Reels. Um, so you can put videos up on there um, and that can help bring people to your books as well. The one recently that's been doing really well has been TikTok. Um, a lot of authors have had really big success with using TikTok to find readers, specifically going on there and finding book talk. And then you put up different snippets of your books or quotes, things like that. And then readers find that and then they go buy your book from there. So you can use other things like um, Pinterest, Twitter, but they're not as big. Those, those three are your main social media platforms that you're really going to want to focus on Facebook, Instagram, and um, TikTok. And then of course, Amazon has Amazon ads that you can also use. Um, and there's whole groups on Facebook dedicated to teaching you how to set up your Amazon ads and use those. So those can work out for some people as well. Okay. I'm glad you brought up both Amazon and TikTok, um, some of the discords that I'm in and tracking and some of the Facebook groups I'm in for, for authors, there is a lot of drama going around right now over TikTok and Amazon um, with advertising on there, some conspiracy theories popping up. And it seems like um, the Amazon ads, like Amazon made some changes in their ads that make them less effective. And that at the same time, the TikTok algorithm seems to have shifted that a lot of authors are who are last year having a great time or this year having a harder time getting some traction. Um, is there, is there anything about that that you can speak on either of what might be happening or at least what authors should expect? Yeah. And it's very true. So the TikTok thing, um, you know, people went from having 10 to 50,000 views per video pretty easily. to now everybody's struggling to get a thousand views on a video. So TikTok, you know, from last summer to now has just been continuously like switching up their algorithm and it has just been getting worse and worse for creators trying to um, get views on their videos. Now, of course, because it's an algorithm, there are still some people that, you know, they hit something and they'll end up getting, you know, a million views on a video. But for the most part, the people who, we're getting semi-reliable results from it. They're having a heck of a time to get any kind of results from it now. So a lot of people are getting very um, discouraged with it. There's a lot of rumors floating around about it had something to do with that Senate hearing and that, you know, now that that's over, that maybe it'll go back to the way it was. Like, I don't know, this could be the new normal. Nobody really knows. The unfortunate part is that for us and for TikTok is that they did not capitalize on their advertising platform. Their advertising platform doesn't really get you a lot right now. It's really hard to target specific niche things like book talk um, or even more niche things like dark romance, things like that. So you get shown to a lot of people that you really wouldn't want to advertise to anyways. So their advertising platform is not up to snuff yet. Um, so it's not like we can even, 
you know, make up views by paying for them the way that you do with Facebook or even Instagram. Um, so it's just kind of like TikTok has just become a really tough place right now. And I have no idea whether that's actually going to change or not. I just want to quickly clarify about the TikTok uh, advertising is that you're, you're talking about TikTok advertising in book space and ebook space. Uh, you know, people on the other side of this that are doing uh, like uh, e-commerce and selling products and courses online are still doing really well sometimes with the advertising of TikTok. That's a uh, whole separate thing. But to actually get the TikTok algorithm on advertising dialed in for not just books, but your specific fiction or nonfiction genre is uh, taking a lot more effort than it should. Um, so that's, I just want to clarify that for, for the listener. Um, now, we talked offline about this a little bit before we got started today uh, with the with what Amazon did um, with their changes to their advertising. And then you had mentioned earlier about how authors can uh, basically get their book kicked off the platform because somebody else stole it and put it on a pirate site. Amazon's done a couple of things now that have pissed off both readers and authors to the extent that um, some people are leaving KU, Kindle Unlimited, whether it's authors or readers. Uh, I don't know if it's a significant amount, but it seems to be a trend that Amazon is not trying to get more people in. It seems like they're pu pushing people out through bad decisions. Yeah, um, and before I go on to that, the, the Amazon thing that they changed in their ads, it, it wasn't that they made a change in their ads, there was some kind of glitch and it was going on for about two or three weeks. And so it was making it to where like they weren't really getting any views, but Amazon was taking their money um, as if they were getting views. And it sounds like that's starting to get fixed. So hopefully that won't be such a problem in the future. That does kind of occasionally happen um, with Amazon and Facebook. Uh, a lot of times Facebook will try to reimburse you. Um, I haven't heard whether Amazon is reimbursing people for that length of time that things were kind of glitching on their end. Um, but then to go on to, yes, um, and now, again, this is the romance uh, side of things. There was, I think, two or three, but especially one really big romance author who she had her books in KU. Um, one of them got pirated and Amazon took her book down now. Things are, again, slowly changing, but Amazon before, when they would take your book down, they would not give you any of the royalties because they took it down. So if you're at the 28th of the month and say you made $5,000 on your royalties, they take the book down, that goes away. And now they have no way of tracking it. So they're like, nope, sorry, you don't get paid. Now, it sounds like there's been a couple of instances, this has happened enough now where they're starting to, they'll put your book back up and give you the royalties for it. So they're starting to kind of make it right with authors, but that's why so many people were so angry about it is anytime your book got taken down, you lost all the royalties that you'd made for that month. Um, and if it went into multiple months, you no longer had it. So there was a big author who, her book got found on a pirating site and then they took her book down. And so she said, you know what? I'm just, I'm going to take all of my books out of KU. She took all of her books out, put them wide, which she's a very big author. She can do that. She can still make money, 
The problem is, is that then some people got a hold of it on TikTok and said, you know, if you want to help authors, we need to stick it to Amazon and authors, you should take your books all out of KU. Readers, you should all leave KU. And so for the last like month, month and a half, there's been people actually leaving KU, readers especially, which hurts the authors who stay in KU because Amazon's still going to get their piece of that pie, right? You know, if there's $40 million that they made for that month, they're going to take whatever piece of it is, and then they're just going to pay the authors less. Um, so it doesn't really help readers. They thought they were doing things that help the authors like they want to help, but Amazon doesn't care. Like they're going to get their piece of the pie and then that's going to be kind of the end of it. But if you really want to help authors, you know, read them wherever they are, whether that's KU or wide. It seems like the the perfect combination of uh, bad decisions. Yeah, you know, we talk about nearly every episode. We talk about the competency crisis. I've already written one Substack about it. I'll be writing another uh, follow up to it because the competency crisis is everywhere. So it doesn't surprise me that Amazon just makes bad and dumb decisions and then has to backpedal for it. And the fact that you know activists are always the least informed people in the room, and whatever they're trying to save, they usually do more damage to it. So it doesn't surprise me that in an effort to help authors, uh, all the activist readers do the, the most damaging thing they can do, which is leave the, leave the platform and stop reading the books. Uh, so that's really a double whammy for the authors to get hit from both ends of that. Um, yeah, uh, this has been really great today. Um, we're, I'm starting to run out of time. I think, God, I have so many more questions. I'm definitely going to have to have you back because there's so much more to ask, uh, especially the, the big one we skipped over, which is the details of romance and and the depravity that's going on in, in the female imagination. That's definitely something that I want to talk to you more about, but unfortunately not today. So as we wrap up this episode for the new authors, whether they're in your genre of romance or just any new, uh, just any new author for any type of genre, where can they go as far as like Facebook groups or discords to, uh, or any other type of group online to, to get support, to get information, to, to learn from other authors, where can they go? So there's a lot of author groups online. One of the best that, um, I've ever seen is 20 books to 50 K. Um, you are going to find so much help there. Uh, whether it's through people asking questions, whether it's through the actual files that they already have on there, just searching the group. It's a really good one to go check out. Um, but there's there's quite a few on, on Facebook that you can find. And, you know, um, some of them are geared more towards romance. Some are going to be geared more towards what their genre is. So just just hitting the search bar and, and really looking up, you know, um, you know, romance author Facebook groups kind of thing. Mystery author Facebook groups is going to be your your best bet. And then looking up those big, um, those big, uh, groups like 20 books to 50 K like they even have a seminar that they do every year in Nevada. And it's not just romance. It's every genre. And they have these huge panelists that come in and they, they, it's like a whole weekend thing. Um, and they just teach you everything from writing to market, writing a good book, marketing that book, you know, all those kinds of things. So it's a really good, uh, a place to go to get a lot of information. Awesome. Thank you for that. It's uh, been a real pleasure to have you here. And for the listeners, I just want to remind everybody that we are on Substack now, both the podcast and our written blog is on Substack. So 
be sure to check that out. Just Wi-Fi Pioneers Substack. Uh, you can reach reach us uh, online on Twitter at at Wi-Fi underscore Pioneers, and send us any comments, any questions. Uh, you know, tell us what you liked, tell us what you didn't like, tell us uh, you know what you want to hear more of, or kind of follow ups for the next interviews. And with that, guys, have a good weekend or by time this post, because we're a little late, uh, have a good rest of your week. And remember, nobody's coming to save you. It's up to you to save yourselves.